the other one on and then just double check. There we go. Okay. <laughs> this should be a fun one. Hi, this is Michael Waits and welcome to a special Silicon Valley Bank SVB edition of the Asia Tech Podcast. Today we have David Gritz back with us on the platform. David is a co-founder and managing director of InsureTech New York. David, how are you? I'm doing well, Michael. I think uh, there's a lot we have to digest, so I'm really excited that you are able to put this impromptu topic on the table so we can have it for a discussion and hopefully digest so your global audience can understand what's going on. Yeah, and same here. Look, I really appreciate it. You're, in fact, boots on the ground, being in New York, being in the United States, watch, watching this whole thing play out, right? I mean, I have probably a 12 or 14 hour delay from news because some stuff happens when I'm sleeping. So it's great to have you there. And to be fair, we were talking about this just before we started recording. It's March 13th for you, March 14th for me. There was a whole bunch of storm and drang at the end of last week and over the weekend, people moaning and groaning and complaining. At the end of the day, now I think we have some sort of resolution to this more than we had. So I'm glad we kind of waited until today to do this. Do you want to start at the beginning from your perspective? What's going on here? And then we can dig deeper as you start to hit like some of the biggest possible points. Yeah. Sure. So I think maybe the most logical place to start is for those that have heard about Silicon Valley Bank, but don't really know about it, maybe to have a little bit perspective of what it means in the US and globally, a little bit of what happened. And then we can start to editorialize on what you can do, what you should have done, all those different things. Right. So the fun stuff. Yeah. So I guess short background is uh, Silicon Valley Bank was a really well-known institution in the U.S. I mean, given its name, obviously a lot of the branches are in that San Francisco Bay area. So from up from, you know, Marin across the Golden Gate Bridge all the way down to San Jose, have a lot of branches, a lot of tech companies there. And I think to kind of give significance so you understand, a lot of the startups would bank there because they had built themselves as the VC-backed bank. So right. if you got VC money, there was a lot of great services and capabilities they had. They understood tech companies. And if you got VC money, they understood what your needs were and design products around you. So what were the specifics here around that, if you know what some of these things were, right? I mean, I think from the outside, people are going to look and just think, it's a bank. It has Silicon Valley in its name, but it might as well have just been called Marin County Bank. I mean, you could have called it anything. And I think at some level, the perception of what should have happened was could have been driven by the name of the bank. But uh, the other question I have is, what were the services that were so special that they offered and were the startups compelled to bank there? Like if I wanted to just have an account at Bank of America instead of SVB, was that problematic for my venture capitalists? Sure. So I guess first starting point, what are some of those services? Yeah. So I think the simplest services, like if you think of a bank, right, there's the core uh, part of it, right? Deposits and custody. Yep. And then there's how they make money, which is typically some version of lending or credit, right? So there's not a lot of banks in the US that provide lending and credit to new companies. In fact, 
most traditional banks, you think the JP Morgans, the Wells of the yeah. world, they want to see, you know, 24, 36 months of bank statements, and they're going to lend on pretty logical things like, what was your EBITDA? And we'll do a multiple of EBITDA. Or usually, like even some of the riskier ones, or, and I say risky in air quotes, right? But ones that are willing to be up on the risk curve, like Santander, they'll say, what was your revenue for the past two years on the tax returns? And they'll lend up to 20% of that revenue because they figure like, you should probably have 20% margins. So that should work out. But they're also looking at traditional things like the owner's credit, right? The difference is Silicon Valley, First Republic, Square One, Signature Bank, they're looking at it from the perspective of, you know, we understand how startup works. Most startups are not profitable, but if they can attract millions of venture capital money that's going to sit in their account, they're probably going to be good on the credit products we give them as long as, you know, the VCs that we know that are investing in them have really bet on them and the other thing is they were willing to do things that a normal bank would never do, which is do a bridge. So if you had a check from a VC coming, you had a term sheet signed, those VCs might have to do a capital call. There may be other reasons why you have to wait, um, but they understood that because they knew most of the VCs, a lot of the VCs banked with them. So they could basically underwrite that bridge or credit products. They also got into some of the, the venture debt type of products. So right. if you're raising $5 million in equity, maybe you pair that with $5 million in debt. And they're okay accepting the fact that right now you don't have the EBITDA to cover it, but they see your revenue is growing you know, 20% a month. So eventually it will be. So what are the implications of the mismatch of the balance sheet here? Right. Do you want to talk at all about how you know a lot of this lending takes place short place, but a lot of the in, a lot of the investments that they made were long term, right? So you're mismatching short term liabilities with long term assets. Can you talk about that and just the the credit risk and the risk that they were taking in on that front as well? Yeah. So for those of you that are not intimately familiar, essentially what got them into trouble is last year when, you know, with rates, banks could maybe make between 0% and maybe 75 basis points in most in like short-term investments, whether it's T-bills or, you know, overnight repos or short-term corporate notes, that wasn't really where they wanted to be. And as a bank, they had grown essentially three times in their deposits over a couple year period because of all the venture activity in 2021 and 2022. So they decide, you know, well, if we go longer term, we can get more yield. The challenge is if you go, as many people know, if you go longer term on the yield curve, you're locking in your rates for longer, but you're also locking in your capital for longer. So if you're going into an environment where rates are raising and you can't hold your bonds until maturity, now they're essentially depreciating assets no different than, you know, the car when you drive it off of the lot and you just bought it. Right. I mean, it's a little bit more complicated than that, right? Because you'd have to talk about bond duration as well and bill duration. And the other thing is that the Fed path too, which is something that is really close to my heart. I was a treasury, I was a U.S. government bond trader. And one of the things that Tommy Judebach, who was the head of the government bond desk at the time, used to tell us was you always have to understand what the Fed path is. Back then, so in the, in the early 90s, early to mid 90s, 
the Fed was way less transparent than they are today. And this is the thing that's really curious for me, right, is that a bank like SVB that's super well connected both to venture capitalists but also to the rest of the banking system, what was it, the 16th largest bank in the United States, has to yeah, have some idea exactly. like what the Fed path is, right? And sure, the Fed raised from essentially 25 basis points overnight rates, right? These are not long-term rates that the Fed creates or controls, but there is a yield curve over which the short-term rates have impact because are you have a flat yield curve, do you have an inverted yield curve, or do you have a typical yield curve, right, that's upward sloping? Why did it take them so long to react to this, right? They had, what, tw some 20 in relatively liquid assets, but during the time where the Fed went from 25 basis points up to what, 5%, so 475 base point increase in rates, they did what and why? Yeah, so I mean, essentially what they did is they bought these mortgage-backed securities and long-dated bonds right. that locked them into low rates. But I mean, yes, I agree with you, Michael. They absolutely should have had awareness of it. I believe one of their executives was... Um, one of the California or the San Francisco Fed board right. uh, members. So they're directly tapped into those discussions. But I think when you look into a lot of the details, they didn't have, you know, a head of risk management for more than six months, right? And they were one of the original groups that lobbied the Trump administration to raise the limit in terms of being able to or required to do stress tests from 50 billion assets to 250 billion. Right. So I think they had a general idea of what's going on. And uh, some of the interesting things I saw on LinkedIn was, you know, how many risk team meetings they had over each year. And it was only increasing. I think it was more than 15 in 2022. Um, so they knew all of these uh, problems were brewing, but they kind of more or less either had their head in the sand or worse, um, if you look at some of the sales by some of the executives a couple of weeks before, right. um, had an idea that something wrong was going to happen. So what is the moral hazard here? I mean, I, I want to go back a little bit. We can talk about moral hazard in a second, but I want to go back and talk about the repeal of Glass-Steagall by the Clinton administration back in the early 90s, and also the relaxing of the Dodd-Frank regulations that you were just talking about, right? Because this is where the rubber really hits the road. You have banks like SVP, you know, that are doing great work, that are building a very specific set of services, like you said, for a specific clientele. So now you have this really, what's the word, highly concentrated risk, right? Where no other bank would just lend to like dog walkers. That's it. That's all you get. And we build special <laughs> services for dog walkers because if something happens in the dog walking market, you have problems, right? But the relaxation of Dodd-Frank and the removal actually of Glass-Steagall in this, in the in the 90s, made it so that even a community bank, which is essentially what SVB was at scale, now can take super duper risk. I mean, we should have learned this back in 2007 and 2008. What was really going on? I mean, what is the chatter around this prior to it happening? And then what's the culpability as well of some of the investors who were like, don't, don't tell anybody, but just take your money out of the bank, right? Because we think there could be a problem. And then complaining later why the bank wasn't then saved. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think a, a lot of points to hit on. I'll, I'll start on the historical piece because Please. I mean, the Glass-Steagall Act um, being crushed, in my opinion, is one of the 
worst choices of regulators in the last, we'll call it 50 30 years. plus years, yeah. 50 years. Yeah. And, and if you think about it, this was created in depression era thinking economists looked at what happened and what could happen. And they put this protection in place. And the protection makes a lot of sense. If you think about it, you shouldn't as Goldman Sachs be able to leverage deposits in Marcus to be able to do more investment banking activities. Yeah, but let's be clear, right? Before 2007 and 2008, Goldman Sachs itself wasn't a bank. What it was really meant to do, right, was a bank like any other bank, like Bank of America, saying, we take all these deposits, and like you said, lending and credit. These are the, these are the businesses of a bank. But the relaxation of Glass-Steagall, the elimination of it said, you know what, you can speculate on anything just like an investment bank. You can become a trading house. This is where the moral hazard was, right? And then SVB was kind of a hybrid in the middle because they weren't trading CDOs and CDSs, but they still were in mortgage-backed securities, right? Right. No, I mean, I definitely agree with you, Michael, that um, from that direction, that uh, commercial banks and, and whether it's just um, SVB, like obviously Signature Bank failed over the weekend and and they take the same type of risks. And like, if, if anything, they're more like a community bank um, than even SVB was. Yeah. So I think that's definitely the problem. But I guess what I was getting at with Marcus is it goes both ways, right? right. Investment banks that want to get bigger by becoming commercial banks is a risk that you know, in my mind, is a tail risk that we haven't quite seen the impacts of yeah, yet. It's so new. It's so new, right? A lot of the stuff that happened after the 2000 and 2008 was that for the Fed and for the Treasury to protect the investment banks after the global financial crisis, they said to become under the regulatory authority, you have to become a bank and take deposits. And this was partially to help out what was happening in the financial system at the time, but also to, to help in, inside of the regulatory environment as well. Can you comment about the, the run, right? In other words, all yeah. these people that came out after the weekend or even before the weekend were saying, like, we have to support SVP and all this other kind of stuff. And yet some of them were actually responsible for telling their firms, their investee companies, excuse me, to take the money out because they were nervous. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I feel like it's super hypocritical. I mean, it's not the only time that I will call it VCs do hypocritical things. There's probably half a dozen other examples, Maybe. right? Like, you know, flying on their private jet to meet with startups and telling founders to reduce their travel. But I think- <laughs> Going in, to COP27 on a private jet? Yeah. So I think in this situation, right? they had a fiduciary responsibility to protect their companies and sure. to ask them to pull the money out. But I think then over the weekend to all post on Twitter and LinkedIn, you know, here's the letter we have that we support SVB. Yeah. And if SVB is bought, we'll keep the deposits there. To me, like that's the worst form of hypocrisy. If you said to take the money out, you should be in camp, you know, big four bank or yep. whatever, the alternative is you can't then turn around and say, oh, we love all the employees of SVB and we want to help them, even though you're ultimately the ones that like stab them behind the back. So I think you can't have it both ways on one side. Um, do I think that, you know, the investors killed the bank? I mean, a lot of people say, you know, if the money didn't flow out is in, you know, billion dollar chunks in an hour, multi-billion dollar chunks in an hour, they could have survived it. And yes, 
that that's probably true maybe but i think the challenge is it might have happened over a month the fact that this happened essentially on a friday and could be resolved by the regulators on a weekend i mean i think partly what caused it to have to be solved on you know the weekend is most companies have payroll on the 15th right. and if i'm janet yellen i'm probably looking at this and saying well you know i really don't want to use taxpayer money or have a perception of it i don't want to backstop a bank but if i take you know we'll call it five thousand startups times 20 people right like that's a big number and that's going to meaningfully affect the jobs report on the next month yeah so it's i think that weekend caused it to become political and i think the government in my opinion did the right thing even though there's probably a lot of people in this country that think well you know why is the everyday man having the backstop all these startups and all these vc people they knew what they were doing they could have looked at the the bank balance sheet I think there's a certain sense that the regulators have to protect contagion because if they didn't backstop it, the same thing could have happened to 20 more banks like on Monday. And from what I'm hearing, it is still happening to 20 more banks on Monday, um, but those banks may be able to survive. I mean, it sounds like Schwab's being hit, First Republic, um, PacWest, there's a bunch of others that you know may fail because of this, but it could have been a lot worse. The equity trader and portfolio trader in me feels like a lot of the activity that happens on Twitter can get driven by people shorting stocks and what we would call talking their own position. So going after some of the other smaller regional banks or smaller community banks means that maybe potentially they borrowed some stock at decent rates, shorted those stocks before the weekend, and then just again went, went after them in public, Kramer used to do this all the time, right? Just to try to make money. Do you feel like any of that's going on as well? No doubt. I think that's absolutely going on. And the thing that's kind of upsetting to me a little bit is now every, if that used to happen in the shadows, right. now it's not just on Twitter and on LinkedIn, but you have YouTube influencers with millions of subscribers, as in, they have more views than Kramer does. Right. And they're sharing their opinions on what they should do, which in theory, from my perspective, is functionally market manipulation. Yeah. But because they say, you know, this isn't financial advice, this is entertainment, maybe they get away with it. This is just GameStop all over again, right? <laughs> Certainly. I mean, in reverse a little bit. In reverse a little bit, yeah. But I, I'm just saying, like the same level of influence where people say something bad's happening. The only way to disintermediate that is for us to get together and do it together. Read the Reddit thread on it, and then GameStop happens. Um, do you do you get the sense as well that some of the venture capitalists, because they've been supporters, I'll put that in quotes, of SVB for the past thirty or forty years, or for however long they've been investing? also had a lot of their own money, whether it's personal money or their firm money in the bank too. And this is one of the reasons why they were freaking out over the weekend because, you know, if you're taking two and 20 on $2 billion, you're talking about 40 million bucks a year in fees that, that could potentially get deposited into a bank that may go bankrupt. Is, was this part of the worry as well? Absolutely. I think there's two pieces of that. So the the first order worry is, 
many of them had their money sitting even like what if you did a capital call that week you yeah. have a lot of your money sitting in the account so i think there was a legitimate concern that they would be losing money for their lps directly but then there's the indirect impact which is their portfolio companies that the money they just gave them is now all evaporated and they either have to put more money in to dilute them or they're going out and now you know if you have to get you know let's call it two and a hundred. Now you need to get four and a hundred to right. make up for right. the ones that just died. Right. So, but again, there, here's the part of the moral hazard. I also think some of their personal money was there too, right? In other words, watch this flow. I invest in a company like Airbnb, let's say, or in Uber, right? And I deposit and I, I deposit the, the money that I gained from that back into SVB. And then I use that to make some of my capital calls if I build my own venture capital company based on the winnings that I've had from some of these unicorn companies that got built in Silicon Valley. And it all seems fine until it's not. So it's not just meaning my firm's money, but my personal money is there as well. And I think I saw some of that in public freaking out on Twitter how do you protect against this happening going forward? Is there any way to do that? Yeah, no, and I think there's definitely a, one, I agree with you, they probably had some of their personal money in it as well. But I think, you know, a number of people have come out on LinkedIn that come from more of a traditional finance background. Yep. Like one guy I've been following a lot, Howard Katzenberg, he runs a startup called Glean and used to be the CFO of Onda Capital. I mean, he's been having like really good posts. And if you think about it, this all comes down to fundamentals, treasury management, yep. right? Yep. So if you know your insurance limit in the US is 250,000, right. why would you ever exceed that, right? It's pretty simple. There is money market accounts now. And in fact, it's actually kind of stupid, right? Like if you're a startup, you got $10 million and you can make 4% on it in a money market that you're probably same bank, maybe even SBV had, because supposedly they had sweep accounts. Right. You know, you're you're one, not giving your company the capital that it could have because of the return. But the other thing is just poor treasury management, right? Like you should ultimately have your capital protected and it should be invested properly. So I think a lot of this is there are too many tech people without any finance background, without any training on what to do with the capital, just making moves in the way that they would think is normal. But anyone who's trained in finance that's been in yeah. a large corporation would say that that's crazy, right? It is. Yeah. I mean, when you when somebody with my background comes out and reads all the stuff that's been going on here, you just look at it and just, it, again, it reminds me, <laughs> if you're a movie buff at all, it reminds me of the one of the scenes in Casablanca where the chief prefect of police comes in and finally shuts down Rick's American's Cafe and he says, there's gambling going on in here. And then on the way out of the building, one of the guys goes, yeah, here are your winnings, by the way. Right. <laughs> if you've never seen Casablanca, go back and watch the movie. But the point is that it all seems very sort of incestuous as well. And I think this is part of the perception problem that they have. You know, there were a lot of people saying, what if this was just called the Kansas City Farmers Bank? And I guess my response to that is, what if it was just called the, the balance sheet mismanaged bank, right? We don't want anyone yeah. to lose their jobs. And you're right. If it's 5,000 companies and 200 employees or whatever it is, you're talking something that's material to employment, particularly on a month-to-month -month basis. But on the other hand, if in the risk-reward calculation, 
there is no risk and it's just rewards. If you remove risk, then this is just going to keep happening at scale. And because information is available in a way that's frictionless and almost instantaneous, this is just going to keep happening, I think, unless some other things change and we go back to Glass-Steagall and also re-strengthen the Dodd-Frank stuff, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think the challenge is what just happened with the regulators is we basically celebrated risk-taking yeah. and um, basically no one even got a slap on the wrist. I mean, Nobody. obviously, all the people at SVB are likely going to lose their job, but all these other players, the VCs that were hypocritical about it, the founders that didn't have the proper treasury management practices, and frankly, like the individuals that didn't have the proper treasury management practices are going to go back, they're going to go to sleep, and they're going to forget all about it the next day. And we're going to lose this opportunity to collectively get better as an organization or as a globe in terms of thinking about how to properly manage money. So a couple more things, then I'll let you go. HSBC comes in in the United, in the United Kingdom and says, we're going to buy all of the assets, essentially, and all of the, the liabilities of uh, Silicon Valley Bank UK. They come in and essentially save this business. And it's probably just going to be business as usual going forward, right? HSBC has trillions of dollars of deposits and, and assets under management. Has there been an announcement of what's going to happen in the United States? Because it feels to me, and I, I said this on Thursday and Friday of last week, just watch the bank that actually acquires them. And they're the ones with like the closest relationship to the Fed, to the FDIC, and also the Treasury, yeah? Yes. Yeah, so there hasn't been an announcement yet yeah. that there's an acquisition. I know on Sunday there was a lot of news about, you know, an auctions opening up and like there were some people saying, you know, PNC was going to put a bid in and then yep. they pulled the bid out. So there are, is likely going to be an acquisition at some point, but my understanding of what's happened is like they've opened their doors, but it's essentially, you know, a government conservatorship for the moment until they figure out if there's an ultimate home. Got it. Is there anything else that we missed that you wanted to point out? We've been at this already, I think, for about 30 minutes. Is there anything else you want to mention or should we just let you go? So I think the one thing that I want to mention is like the what's next and some of the long consequences. And, go for it. you know, since we're in SureTech New York, the insurance angle. Yeah. So I think the long term consequences of this is, yes, I think there's going to be some contagion. It's going to affect other banks beyond First Republic, Schwab, and Signature Bank, there could be, you know, a dozen others that are impacted. But I think the ultimate long-term consequences, my hope, is that there's now awareness that no matter where you're putting your money, right, when you put your money into a stock, when you put your money into a bond, you typically do your diligence. I think everyone should know now, if you're putting your money into a bank, you should do your diligence, right? And I mean, myself, I'm to fault, like I have some money in a community bank and this prompted me to look at the their balance sheet. And you wanna know what was great? I looked at their balance sheet and they have no, like zero dollars in assets held to maturity, right? They have roughly 900 million that's in assets like, across like a bunch of different things. They have a strong loan portfolio and there's only 800 million in, in deposits. So they're extremely healthy. And this is just some random bank that's in, in Delaware, Bank of Delmarva. So I think, you know, community banks can definitely be good, 
but you should do your diligence. And I think that's what I hope the long term is that everyone's aware of this now. And then the second thing is, is my concept on the insurance perspective, which is kind of a funny thing, which is, it seems like it's always the insurance people that save the banks, right? It's it's FDIC that's that's taking over to save the things. So I just hope um, people realize it's the insurance that that bailed them out. It it wasn't the taxpayer money. Um, so hopefully people will be a little bit more proud to be in the insurance industry, and we can look at it as a noble profession because we're here to help. Yeah, I mean the I in the FDIC stands for insurance. People should know this. Most people have no idea. Okay. <laughs> David, that was great. I really appreciate your time. Anytime you want to come on to anywhere on the platform to just to talk about stuff that's happening, emergency podcasts are the best kind of podcasts. I really appreciate it. David Gritz, a co-founder and managing director of InsurTech New York. That was awesome. Let's do more of that. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, man. Yeah.